is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, reading from verse 1 to 14. Opposition to the rebuilding. When Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from this heap of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Amorite, who is at his side, said, What they are building, even if a fox climbed up on it, it would break down the wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back onto their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So, we rebuilt the wall until all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the men of the Arabs and the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that we were still repairing Jerusalem's walls and had gone ahead and that the gaps were beginning to close, they were very angry. They all plotted against us to fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, strength of the labourers is giving out and there is still much rubble that cannot be built into the wall. Also, our enemies said, before we know it, before they see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who had lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places with their swords, spears and bows. After I'd looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember, the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm going to start with a confession, which is that I am a terrible procrastinator. 
Despite having weeks to prepare this talk, I didn't actually start till last Thursday. I wrote most of it on Friday evening, which I think makes me the only 18-year-old ever to turn down a party invitation because I hadn't written my sermon yet. <laughs> and when I'm supposed to be getting something done, the smallest thing can distract me. While I was supposed to be revising for my A-levels, I kept getting sidetracked by these online quizzes. You know, the ones which are like, which Disney character are you? And you start with a fairly normal one, and then after an hour of clicking through quiz after quiz, you've reached, which flavor pie matches your personality? <laughs> and you've got absolutely no work done. I'm an apple pie, by the way. Very sweet. Anyway, I found one quiz which claimed to determine your grit factor, and how gritty you are depends on your passion for a particular long-term goal, how powerful your motivation is, and how you persevere despite opposition. I scored a fairly respectable 3.4 out of 5 on the grit scale. And if anyone else fancies trying that, I'd be interested to know who's grittier than me or not. But the one thing I know is that Nehemiah would be a solid 5 out of 5. In today's passage, the people that don't like the idea of Jerusalem's walls being rebuilt do everything they can to try and stop Nehemiah. Samballat was the governor of Samaria, and he represented the people to the north of Jerusalem, who are the ancient enemies of Israel, hence the significance of the story of the Good Samaritan, later told by Jesus. It's likely that he felt threatened by Nehemiah's rebuilding. If the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, that meant that Jerusalem would one day be secure again, meaning he would lose power, prestige, and also valuable trade routes to neighboring provinces. So, he set about to tear down Nehemiah's vision and discourage him in every way possible. Firstly, Samballat arrives backed up by the whole army of Samaria and a bunch of other Samaritan dignitaries as an intimidation technique. In verses 1 to 3, we see him mocking Nehemiah. Then in verses 7 to 12, threats of physical attack appear. Further on in chapter 6, we see moves to publicly discredit Nehemiah and even murder plots. With every advance in building comes uglier forms of attack. It's mostly psychological, with the aim of scaring them into bringing building work to a halt. The worst kind of insults are the ones which pick up on things you're already insecure about. In verse 2, Sanballat calls them feeble Jews, humiliating them by highlighting their already vulnerable position. In his question, will they restore their wall? He is basically saying, do they really understand what they've just undertaken? There's nothing less helpful when you've started a big, difficult project than someone coming along and doubting your capability or even your sanity, echoing your own fears and undermining your confidence. Sanballat and his buddy Tobiah the Ammonite go on ridiculing the Jews' faith, telling Nehemiah his plan is too big and generally trying to convince him that it's never going to work. Nehemiah's first response to criticism is to pray. His prayer is a pretty ranty, angry one, but I think that's okay sometimes. There's a great song that Diane introduced me to called um, Better Than Hallelujah, which is by Amy Grant, and it basically says that God loves the honesty of when we just let off steam and pour out our hearts to him, and a rant is better than a hallelujah through gritted teeth. I have had many fantastic ranty prayer walks where I've gone off stomping around Leap Valley Woods telling God all about why I'm not happy with a certain situation. And I've always found that by the time I make it home, God's taken that frustration and replaced it with peace. 
In this case, letting out his anger fueled Nehemiah's determination and energized his work. In verse 6, it says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Half its original height. That's great progress. I don't know what it is about someone telling you you can't do something, but for me, it always triggers the same, oh, can't I? Just watch me, type of response. When I was 13, I was on a school outward bounds trip, and we were going rock climbing. And it got to my turn, and the instructor kind of looked at me and went, it's okay if you don't make it to the top. Some people just aren't built for rock climbing. Which he probably meant in a kind and reassuring way, but my instant response was that I jolly well was going to make it to the top and faster than anyone else. And suddenly this climbing trip that I hadn't been that bothered about before became the most important thing because I just had to prove him wrong. Which I did and then stayed at the top feeling smug for way longer than I needed to. In a similar, less egotistical way, Nehemiah channeled his anger into productivity and worked even harder at what God had called him to do. However, the opposition from Sam Ballam Co. gets more intense when their criticism doesn't stop progress. They rally their neighbours to join them, and in verse 8 it says, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. By now, the Jews are not only exhausted by their work, overwhelmed by the sheer amount left to do, and discouraged by Sam Ballot's insults, they're now also scared of the threats of war. When tired, it's easy to see only what you've still got to do, not what you've already done, and the most crucial time in any project is when you're halfway through. Abandoned round my room, I have many half-written novels, the outlines of a musical about the Berlin Wall, a notebook full of lyrics from a CD Susie and I promised Steve we'd make him about five years ago, and countless other abandoned projects that at the time I was sure were going to make me rich and famous, but gradually gave up on or lost interest in. Nehemiah could have done the same. He could have quit building, at least until it was safer. He could have made a preemptive strike. He could have redirected their energy into fighting. Instead, he prayed, he made some practical provisions, and then just kept on building. I love the practicality of Nehemiah's response. As well as continually praying, he sets up a 24-hour guard, makes people work in shifts and carry weapons, even when going to get water from a well. He carefully stationed guards in the exposed part of the walls, near to their families, so they had more motivation to fight to, pro to protect them. The positioning would have meant that there was far more at stake for each of the Jews individually, because the bit of wall they were protecting would have been the only thing standing between their own family and enemy attacks. There's a fantastic bit at the end of the passage, which you can really imagine would fit sort of three quarters of the way through a film as the sort of rallying speech that brings everyone together when all hope seems lost. In verse 14, he says, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. And at that point, I kind of want to add, And for Narnia! <laughs> but I think there's actually a crucial point here in the encouragement he gives. They tried to rebuild the walls for 70 years and Nehemiah rebuilt them in 52 days. Not because he was a good builder. He was actually a cupbearer to the king of Persia, not trained in any kind of physical work, but because he was a good encourager. I think one of the most needed spiritual gifts within the church at the moment is not prophecy or healing, but encouragement. 
building each other up, reminding each other of who we are and whose we are as we face opposition. Who you are, as in the way God has fearfully and wonderfully designed you, and things like the fact that being daughter of the King of Kings literally makes you a princess, and who you are, like that God has your name written on the palm of his hand. That kind of solid spiritual identity is a really powerful weapon in overcoming opposition. Like Nehemiah, if we're following God's plans for us, we're going to face opposition. And this opposition to God's work often has a source beyond its human vehicles. We live in a reality of two kingdoms, a heavenly one and a worldly one, with a battle raging between them. Satan's plan is to distort, discourage, and disrupt all of God's plans. So the more we're working and stepping out for God, the more opposition we're going to face. Satan isn't too bothered by half-hearted Christians who are content just to rumble along to church once a week. The more on fire for God you are, the bigger the obstacles he's going to try and throw in your way. As long as you live according to the world's values and for the world's goals, Satan's not really going to trouble you. You can go to church and pray and read your Bible and he won't mind. But the minute you wake up from spiritual lethargy and commit yourself to radical obedience to God, you're going to encounter spiritual opposition. If you respond well to the opposition by praying and working and refusing to be discouraged, it pushes you into greater dependence on God and increases your determination to do what he has called you to. But if you give in to opposition, quit what you're working for, and settle for a mediocre kind of Christian existence, Satan's got what he wants and moves on to pull down the next passionate person. The current greatest danger to the church is not cults or extremists or a materialistic society, but apathetic, half-hearted Christianity. Nehemiah tells us we need to get passionate to rebuild the brokenness around us. We might not be surrounded by literal rubble in our culture, but ours is in spiritual ruins. God calls us to stand in a broken, hurting, sinful world and with God to take the rubble that's lying around us and use it to rebuild a wall. So my challenge to you is to get passionate or to regain your passion. Where is God calling you to rebuild walls? Is it a particular area or situation or people group needing restoration? Is there something you used to strive for but gave up on? How bothered is Satan by the advances you're making? Are you a threat to his worldly kingdom? And if not, why not? Be gritty with the passions that God has given you. And remember that even though the opposition we face sometimes seems impossible, the God whom we serve, who is working in us, is far bigger than any situation in the world ever. And he's continually working for the good of those who love him.